Hello and welcome to the Locked On Canucks Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Justin Morissette, and this is your Locked On Canucks for Saturday, November 9th, coming to you after the Vancouver Canucks have dropped two straight on the road, uh, one to the Chicago Blackhawks on Thursday night, the other last night to the Winnipeg Jets, two of the lesser efforts of the season from the Canucks. And uh, I didn't, in fact, get the opportunity to watch all of these games in their entirety, uh, partly because I have other jobs and uh, was working the Vancouver Giants broadcast on Friday night, so I was watching the Canucks-Jets game but not actually listening to it. Missed a few things here and there, perhaps. So to join me uh, in breaking all of these games down, why don't we uh, meet today's special guest? My guest today is a man who, uh, after every game, writes, of course, for the Vancouver Courier as part of Pass It to Bullis, a column called I Watched This Game, which is exactly why he's joining me today after a couple of games that I was uh, not able to watch for uh, work reasons, or not watch entirely anyways. It's Daniel Wagner of Pass It to Bullis. Daniel, uh, welcome to Locked On Canucks, and thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Uh-huh. Uh, let's start with Thursday night's action in Chicago, uh, shall we? Because uh, that was a game that I had PVR'd and intended to come back home and watch when I was uh, finished working one of my other jobs there, Daniel. And there's nothing quite like returning home with a game on the PVR uh, to tweets that say, oh, this is the team's worst effort of the season, just an abominable <laughs> game. Uh, you know, th- that, that makes you feel good about the three hours you hypothetically are about to spend watching a game that's already happened. Uh, did I miss much uh, on Thursday night in Chicago? Well, the one thing I would say is that the Canucks weren't as bad as all of those tweets might have suggested. They actually had a lot of good scoring chances. They, they created a lot in the front of the net. A lot of what happened was just pucks bouncing over sticks. There were rebounds that were available and just they couldn't quite get good contact on the puck. Uh, there were just lots of chances and just nothing really happened. They kind of had a rough start, but overall they weren't that bad. And maybe that's a good sign for this season that their worst effort of the season was one where you can look at it and go, well, you know, it could have been worse. <laughs> Nobody really played horribly. There was a lot of good things that you could talk about from that game. And if that's their worst effort of the season, okay, this might be a decent team. Yeah, it was kind of weird to hear Jeremy called in uh, on game day on Thursday morning talking about the fact that, you know, this is a great measuring stick opportunity for my team to see how they stack up against one of the best teams in the West. It's like, well, <laughs> hang on a second. <laughs> Slow your roll here. I don't know about the best team in the West. Uh, like, that's one of the things that that October for the Canucks kind of elevated expectations quite a bit for this team beyond where they were to start the season. Yeah, I mean, uh, even I, you know, have been saying all season long thus far, just, you know, slow your roll a little bit, exactly like you just said. This team might not be exactly what we think they are, but then they go out and play the kind of game that they did on Tuesday night against the St. Louis Blues where, you know, they they didn't have any luck uh, as far as around the net, which you're saying is the case on Thursday as well against Chicago, but they kept with it. They They kept battling. They fought all the way through. They let their frustrations 
overpower them instead of succumbing to them as they might have uh, in recent seasons. And that, to me, was a sign that you know maybe this team actually is for real. Maybe there is cause to buy in on this, even in a game that they lose, even in a game that they lose in the most embarrassing fashion possible by allowing uh, a three-on-zero uh, odd man rush the other way in overtime. With you know, it doesn't even make sense how that could even happen. But uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff in that game to believe that this team is different. And then, uh, you know, right when I'm ready to buy in, like the day after I said, hang on a second here, they go out and put out that St. Louis effort. I'm starting to believe. It's like they, they've punished me now for buying into what uh, a lot of this market wants to believe they are. And maybe maybe they've bought in on that a little bit as well. But I mean, maybe not if you're telling me that uh, this awful effort on Thursday actually wasn't that bad. Well, the hockey gods have clearly punished you for your hubris. Uh, you should not have believed in them so quickly, obviously. I, I don't know. Like, this is, it's, I had the same feeling after that St. Louis game. The nice thing about that, that Tuesday game is that it was a different kind of game for the Canucks. It was a very different experience for them. They weren't going out there and just throttling a, a bad team. They weren't out there scoring five goals. They were battling hard, throwing hits. Pedersen was throwing hits. Besser was throwing hits. He had Miller just running over guys. You had Myers playing physically. You had all of these guys playing a game that, you know, they describe it as a playoff-like game. And they were able to hang with the Stanley Cup champions and not just hang with them, but tie it up in, in uh, late in the third period, take it to overtime, and then just have everything fall apart from there. But, you know, when you get to three-on-three overtime, it's a coin flip anyways. But to have them have that kind of performance against that kind of team in a game that was very different from the other kinds of games they've played this season, yeah, there was a moment there where I was like, yes, okay, this team is for real. And then, you know, these last couple games happen, and it's like, okay, let's slow down. Because what I wrote heading into November was, if they survive November, then I can buy them as a playoff team. And that was the big challenge, is that this November is going to be really tough. And we've seen that already with all these games happening in quick succession, the back-to-backs that they just had on Thursday and Friday. I believe that was like eight games in a certain amount of, I can't remember how many days it was, but there was like eight games in a row where they were playing in a different city every night. And and they're going to have a ninth one on Sunday where they're playing again in a different city. It just happens to be at home. With all of that, you can understand them being fatigued and things starting to crop up where you're getting injuries to some players. Edler looked dead tired on Friday. Like All these things are going to add up over the month of November where they have 15 games in 30 days. Like No time for rest, no time really to practice and work out some of the things that they're seeing in these games. These games are just going to keep coming one after another. They have to survive this month and not just survive but still be near the top of the Pacific Division in the Western Conference, really to give this uh, market confidence that this is a playoff team. It wasn't just one good month. And while the Canucks have already treated you to one good month, I want to help you get treated to one good meal. That's right. Treat yourself to the meal that you deserve and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code LOCKEDON. I saw Harmon Dial tweeting uh, during Tuesday's game, of course, and this is kind of a common cliche, I guess, that you know people forget that the first game back from a road trip is often uh, still kind of a road 
game because you're not really settled back in and you're you know coming home and it's uh, I, I don't know how much I buy into that uh, in a game like that where you're playing pretty much 72 hours after uh, the San Jose game on Saturday came to a close but I guess there is something to the fact that that was just a one-off home game and then you're right back out on the road again um, you know you kind of touched on it there already but I was going to ask like is this team just exhausted right now already uh, this is a very tough schedule in November as you mentioned they do kind of get to rest up here over the next week with four games in a row at Rogers Arena. But, uh, you know, is this homestand kind of coming right at the perfect time? Well, it, it really is that they're getting some time at home. But again, it's four games and seven nights. It's not a lot of rest in between games, even though it's a homestand. This is still a tough schedule. Next week after that as well, they're facing some really tough teams on the road. There just is really no time to take a breath, take stock of where you are, and really reset. It just seems to be like every other night you're playing another game. And I think what we're seeing from them is a tired team, especially when you're looking at guys like Edler and Myers that are playing a ton of minutes. And that is kind of a sticking point for this season. Uh, and things that you want to ask Travis Green is like, why is Alex Edler playing so many minutes? Why is Tyler Myers playing so many minutes? When you've got a third pairing in Jordy Ben and Troy Stetcher, that is very capable. Those are two guys that have played top four minutes over the last couple of seasons. Those are guys that can play a bigger role, take on more minutes, and give some of your veterans that maybe are getting a little tired and fatigued already just 15, 16 games into the season, give them a chance to rest a little bit more, ease down their minutes so that they don't get tired and have some of the performance performances that we saw over the last couple of games. Edler had his worst game of the season on, on Friday. And we're talking about a guy who has been part of one of the best pairings in the NHL. Edler and Myers have been fantastic to start the season. And then Edler was just awful on Friday, making terrible reads, not moving his feet, just looking tired. And if you can avoid that by lowering his minutes and getting some more minutes for Ben and Stetcher and just kind of taking that load off of your uh, your veteran defenseman that's been with the team longer than anyone else, that that has to be done. <laughs> it's something they have to do to really manage for the rest of the season, especially with this tough schedule in November. It really reminds me of the Torts year where uh, Tortorella kind of looked at the roster and decided that the number one route to success was just playing the Sedins in every situation, playing them a ton at even strength, playing them on the power play, playing them on the penalty kill, making sure that those guys were going to be playing, you know, 20 to 22 minutes a night as forwards. And it's, you know, one of the legendary Botchford stories of Jason just listening to that at the press conference being like, yeah, that sounds great. Hell yeah. And then driving home afterwards and being like, wait, what? Like, come on. How is that going to work? And obviously, we are inclined to believe that defensemen do play more minutes than forwards do. But, like, Edler is at about the same age, if not the same age exactly, that the Sedins were in the Tortorella season. And you have to think the same thing, which is that, you know, what I've been saying about uh, whether it's Edler's ice time or, or, you know, fans getting overly excited about where this team is at right now at this point in the season, it is a, it is not, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You have to make sure that you have fuel reserves down the stretch to get where you want to go. You cannot be 
you know, mashing the turbo button at this point in the season. And when you are playing Alex Edler 27, 25 minutes a night, depending on if a game goes to overtime or so on, etc. Like, you know, the, Alex Edler does not need to play every other shift in OT. He just does not. And he doesn't need to play 25 minutes in games that are not going to extra time. It is absurd. And yes, I, like... It's like, you know, Travis Green is, 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 this is not his first season behind the bench in this city. And yet he seems to forget like the, the ways things go wrong for him year after year, because if he remembered, there's no way that he would be playing Edler as much as he is. Yes. Okay. It's good that Chris Tanev is not being played as much as Edler and Myers, but just because uh, you've got Myers to push Tanev down the depth chart doesn't mean that Edler should be still be playing that much as well. Well, what's intriguing is that it's really only with the defense that this is happening. Uh, you look at how he's deploying the forward line, and there's a lot more balance there. You're getting uh, less minutes out of Sutter and the third line. You're getting a little bit more balance between Pedersen and Horvat. He's been willing to use Pedersen and Horvat in more of a matchup role, sometimes going power against power, depending on who he's facing. And so that means that he's been able to shelter uh, that third line with Sutter a little bit more, rather than seeing Sutter playing these massive minutes in this matchup role that he had in the last couple of seasons. And that's actually been really beneficial for the forwards. We've seen a lot of offense from the, that top line of Pedersen, Miller, and Besser. We've seen maybe not as much offense from Horvat, but they've at least been able to play in more of a matchup role and kind of keep things even there, not losing that battle. And then you've got Sutter in the third line being able to be more sheltered and actually putting up some offense a little bit more than we might have expected from them. And then Jay Beagle and his line playing more of a matchup role as well. So there's been more balance with the forward lines. They're not running any of them into the ground. It's just on the defense where you look at it and you go, how is Edler playing so many minutes when he's in his 30s, he's older, he's already had injuries over the last couple of seasons? Why don't you lower that down? Especially when we, we've seen what Stetcher can do, given more minutes. Every single season, it seems like he starts on the third pairing and then works his way up the lineup as injuries happen. Well, why not just take the injuries out of the equation and give him more minutes to start the season? They brought in Jordy Ben, a guy that is reliable and can play in a top four role. Give him those minutes earlier rather than waiting for injuries and promoting him up the lineup. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all. Well, the thing that's frustrating for me, especially as far as Stetcher's ice time, and I've talked about this many times on the podcast already, is, like, why is he not playing more than one shift a game on the penalty kill, basically? Like, he'll get some PK ice time lately. He wasn't getting any to start the year. He's getting a little bit now, but it's like 40 seconds, which ultimately winds up being just one penalty killing shift over the course of the entire game. Like this is a guy who wins board battles. He is like, you know, everything that we talk about Josh Levo doing things, you know, that are the little details that are beneficial to driving play in the right direction. Josh Levo being a big reason why Brandon Sutter is having a turnaround season this year. To me, like Troy Stetcher is the Josh Levo of defensemen. He, he might not be big, but he wins battles. He's got a, a good I like stick. He's, he's good at pushing play in the right direction. 
direction. All of the things that make Troy Stetcher an effective player at even strength, you would think, are also things that would translate to strong penalty killing. And yet, the team just shows this utter reluctance to play him in that role when that's a spot where you can reduce the number of minutes that an Alex Edler or a Chris Tanev are playing. I think that's really key right there, is that Stetcher, even if you look at the numbers, the underlying numbers, he has been pretty good on the penalty kill over the last few years. Like, better than Myers was in, in Winnipeg, at the very least. Uh, Stetcher is a guy that can play on the penalty kill. They've been reluctant to put him there. As I understand it, some of it has just been some bad timing. Uh, at times, Travis Green has been convinced to put Stetcher on the power play, and then, I mean the penalty kill, and then he gets put out there, and immediately the other team scores a goal. And sometimes that's just a bad bounce, some bad luck. But then it, that just kind of reinforces Green's reluctance to use him in that role. When really the numbers suggest that he should be there, the eye test where you see how he wins battles and how he's good at clearing the puck, that suggests he should be on the penalty kill. But sometimes the circumstances just kind of work against him where he, we, we saw that even this, this season, he ended up on a penalty kill, I think because uh, one of the regular penalty killers was in the penalty box. Edler's been taking a ton of penalties, for instance. And so Stetcher's been used more on the penalty kill, mainly because Edler has been taking the penalties that put them on the penalty kill. Uh, but there was one where he came out for his first shift on the penalty kill in a long time, and the other team immediately scored. And it wasn't really on him. It wasn't his fault. But that's a situation where a coach looks at that and maybe already thinks, well, this and that immediately reinforces that belief. And, and so I think Stetcher absolutely should be on the penalty kill. I think that you could even take Edler off of the second power play unit to reduce his minutes so that he's not playing as much, even though the power play is not necessarily those kind of heavy minutes that take a toll on the body. But they have to find some way to reduce those minutes. Uh, you mentioned overtime. That's a big one, too. Why not have Stetcher playing in overtime? He's a guy that can skate. He can move with the puck. He's shown some ability when there's a lot more room on the ice to really be effective offensively, but they haven't really wanted to use him in that role. Instead, they keep rolling out Edler again and again. Well, you mentioned uh, Edler's penalty minutes uh, a little while ago there, and uh, let's talk about that because I don't know if it's still true as we're having this conversation today, but I do know a couple days ago, uh, Alex Edler led the NHL in the most minor penalties taken in the entire league. How much of that is just a matter of being matched up hard against the top lines of the NHL, against your Alex Ovechkins, against your Connor McDavid, so on, etc. The the, num- the number one talents that 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 Myers-Edler pairing has to see every night. And, you know, for the most part, all those guys are fast. So you might wind up taking some, you know, hooking or holding infractions because of the speed that the top players of today have. But, like, how much of that do you feel like is exasperated by the fact that he is playing all these minutes? Because... Uh, you mentioned his performance uh, in Winnipeg being one of a guy who's just absolutely gassed right now. Are his penalties more a matter of being matched up against top talents, or are these kind of lazy infractions from a guy who is playing too many minutes? It's a combination of all those factors. You're talking about a guy that's playing 25 minutes a night against top competition. You're going to end up taking penalties in that situation unless you're an elite shutdown talent 
we saw Tanev do that for years where he would match up against top talent and somehow not take any penalties while still being effective defensively. But I think with Edler, he's lost a step. He's not as fleet-footed as maybe he once was. And when you're struggling to keep up with your skating, you have to depend on your positioning. And when other forwards are coming at you with speed and your positioning's a little bit off, you're going to take those penalties. And what happens when you're fatigued is your positioning starts to suffer. You have that mental fatigue to go with your physical fatigue, and your timing's off a little bit. We saw that even in Winnipeg. He went for a big hit on Matthew Perot, trying to keep a puck in at the blue line, and Perot just stepped aside, and Edler sent himself into his own bench. You know, it's one of those little timing issues where maybe if he was a little more mentally acute, where he, he wasn't as fatigued, he would make a better read there, or he, and, and he wouldn't send himself into his own bench. And so I think that adds up. When you're, not, uh, when you're mentally fatigued, you start to lose some of your mental positioning. You, you start to make poor decisions. You start to have to kind of reach in with a stick or reach out with a hand to make up for that lack of positioning and that lack of foot speed. And we start to see those clutching and grabbing holding calls, those little trips and hooks that he's starting to take. And, yeah, he's going to keep taking those penalties as long as they push him in that many minutes against top competition without giving him the rest that he needs. Well, if Alex Edler's minutes are not being managed effectively, let's talk about a guy who, uh, as you mentioned earlier, whose minutes probably are being utilized a little bit better this season. And that's Brandon Sutter, who has settled into this role where, you know, as I said on the show earlier this week, he's he's not a top six scorer and he's not the top checking unit, which, you know, we tend to have a name for what that role is. It's called fourth line minutes. Um, whether or not he's, he's being given a fourth line role or not, there using this third line now effectively as a scoring unit if if Sutter is not being asked to check if those m- matchups are going to Horvat or or Beagle and uh, to me, it still feels like a guy who's miscast because if that's what you want your third line to be, you know we've seen that used very effectively here in Vancouver. You know, Kyle Wellwood was was often called like a, a, a square peg in a round hole as far as being an elite team's third-line center. But if you're going to use your third line as a scoring unit, would you not rather have a, you know, quote-unquote Kyle Wellwood type than whatever it is you're getting from Brandon Sutter this season? Well, a quick side note on Kyle Wellwood, because you, you immediately brought up one of my favorite players from that era. Um, Kyle Wellwood was actually far better defensively than he ever got credit for. Uh, if you check the statistics, he was among the league leaders in fewest goals allowed when he was on the ice. Like, when he was on the ice, the other team did not score. And however you want to look at that, however he did that, he was very effective at preventing the other team from scoring. And that's what you want from a defensive center, right? It's, it's the he, just was, he, he was just never used in that role. It's the Subban effect of the best defense is a good offense. You're not getting scored on if the puck is in the offensive zone the entire time. And he was so good at controlling the puck, too, and, and making good decisions in the defensive zone of where to pass the puck, where to skate the puck. He just made good decisions. And I had an opportunity to ask him about that uh, after he retired. And he, he said flat out, like, coaches never gave him credit for how good he was defensively because of how small he was and how he looked. He just had this kind of small, you know, let's admit it, pudgy kind of 
look to him. And you see that and you go, well, that's not a defensive center. That's not a, a guy that you put in defensive zone face-offs to shut down the other team. You look at Brandon Sutter and you go, yeah, that's a defensive center. That's what you want a defensive center to look like. And yet he's not always that good at shutting down the opposition. He spends a lot of time in the defensive zone, but that's bad generally. Uh, a couple of years ago, he was a little more effective in a matchup role, a shutdown role. But last season, and I think we're seeing this season as well, shutdown is not really what he's that good at, which oh. is surprising because that's what we've been sold as that's his skill set. He's is still his, very good on the penalty kill, This but is maybe not at 5-on-5. Five five. This is his worst defensive season so far in Vancouver. So, you know, for all of the complaining about how he was never good at that in the first place, uh, outside of, you know, penalty killing, which I think people have been willing to concede, he is pretty good at. Uh, but, like, I mean, when you can just ice the puck at will on the PK, like... That's a that's a different skill than being able to be defensively effective at five on five. And this year, it has not been there, especially the minutes that he has played away from Josh Levo. Like it, any success that Brandon Sutter has had this year, it's because Josh Levo is doing the heavy lifting and all of the work defensively to enable him to score the five on five points that he has so far. It sounds like you've been reading my articles. Um, <laughs> So uh, just to plug my own work briefly, I, I wrote an article heading into the season that had the very blunt headline, Brandon Sutter is not a shutdown center. Um, and then this season, uh, I wrote about how Sutter and Levo have been actually a very effective duo when it comes to producing offense. And it's true that a lot of it seems to be due to Levo and the way that he wins puck battles, the way that he uh, steals pucks. Uh, I talked to him about it. He, he specifically brought up one of the players that he watched when he was a kid that he loved was Pavel Datsuk, and not necessarily just because of his dangles and his elite skill, but the way that he would just sneak up on players and steal the puck from them before they even knew he was coming. And so that's something that Levo has been very effective at, and it's really helped Sutter be more effective in terms of puck possession because when Brandon Sutter doesn't have Levo on his line, his puck possession is awful, he just ends up stuck in the defensive zone for long shifts. And part of that is he's getting stuck out there for defensive zone face-offs in place of Elis Pedersen or sometimes put out there with other lines just to take a defensive zone face-off. And sometimes that means you get stuck there as a result. But I, I think that we've seen as a sheltered third-line center, he can produce a little bit of offense. Is he ideally designed for that role? No. You'd rather have maybe somebody like, well, you know, Jared McCann to open up that can of worms. <laughs> um, but, but you'd rather have somebody that is a little bit more offensively inclined rather than a guy that spent most of his career as a defensive center, even if he's not always been well cast in that role. Yeah, it just seems like there's a lot of people right now who want to take a victory lap on this guy and, and the five-on-five five production that he's put up early in the season. First of all, you know, there's a question of whether or not that production is even sustainable the rest of the way down the line. But even if you did want to take a victory lap and say that, you know, this guy actually is, you know, good in this role, it still feels like he's been miscast. It still feels like he's an odd fit for what is being asked of him. He's just here and we have to get the best of him, whatever that happens to be. Now, I'll give Sutter credit because, like, he does have a good shot when he's... Uh, 
attacking off the rush, he can be pretty dangerous because he does go to the net. He goes to those, those tough areas. He does do some good things. And I don't want to just completely slam Sutter because I, I want to be realistic about what he's good at. He's still, he's still one of the best hockey players in the world because you don't make it in the NHL unless you are. And, and he can be effective on the ice. Just maybe it's, it's not as effective as people want him to be because he looks like a hockey player. He, he's a sutter. He has all these attributes that you like. He does all the details that a coach likes to see. He does all these things that, that make you believe he's a better hockey player than the results actually suggest. All right. Well, uh, let's. Uh, I'll squeeze one more question in before we wrap up. Let's talk a little bit about JT Miller because he did score goals in both of these road games um, uh, against Chicago and Winnipeg. But he didn't really score them, though, did he, Daniel? They kind of, <laughs> you know, for all that we talk about how uh, Anson Carter or Taylor Pyatt or whoever take your pick of any Sedin line mate over the years just needed to stand in front of the net and then people could just ping pucks in off of them. That that's exactly what JT Miller has been over the last couple games here. Now, I will say this. Like, that, that goal on Thursday where Pedersen just lofted a puck off of Miller's leg and in, brilliant. Like, that's, that's something that you would see maybe from the Sedins, like, literally banking a puck in off a player. But I will say this. If you rewatch that highlight, Miller suggested that to Pedersen. You watch what he does. Miller's standing there at the top of the crease, and he's looking at Pedersen. Pedersen's looking at him, and Miller moves his left leg in a little kicking motion. And, you, and if you look at it, it really looks like Miller is going, hey, just pass it to me and it'll off my leg. Like, it looks like he's suggesting to Pedersen that's what he should do. And the fact that Pedersen saw that and went, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Like, they're on the same page in, 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 to an insane degree. Now, everybody wants to give Pedersen credit for that, and yes, absolutely, to think of that and see that and execute that, that's insane. That's crazy. That is next-level talent. But you rewatch the highlight. Miller was suggesting it. Miller was going, hey, do this. And then Pedersen did it. Is, is he, uh, I mean, the, I, I don't want to open this can of worms, I guess, because this is an even bigger argument than Jared McCann. But, uh, you know, uh, there's still people who are bemoaning the price that was given up to acquire this guy. When you see how well he fits in with this group and the fact that they, you know, they needed help, not just, you know, years down the line. They needed help right now. A first round pick either this year or next, which probably isn't going to pan out or, or make any sort of impact at the NHL level for at least three years years if not four like is that a deal that you would make if given the opportunity to go back and and uh sit in the chair and be the gm yourself uh that isn't a deal i would make to be perfectly honest even seeing how it's worked out because you you don't make those deals based on hope and conjecture uh because there's a couple reasons why i think that was still the wrong deal to make one is that the lightning were under a lot of pressure to make a deal because of the cap crunch that they were in and to pay that kind of price to alleviate a problem for the lightning that that's the issue for me. It's not just that they did a trade where they gave up a first round pick. It's that they did it with a team that needed to make a deal. Um, Benning even suggested that the prices would have been lower later on that if he had waited until after the draft, he could have gotten a better deal. 
So again, that just saying that just tells you, well, maybe that wasn't the right deal to make at the right time. I like JT Miller a lot. I don't think you could have predicted that he would fit in this well on the top line. And keep in mind, we're still talking about a very short period of time and we'll see how the rest of the season goes. But for me, that was still, that's still a high price to pay. And you, and you say that like you're talking about a first round pick that maybe doesn't make an impact for three or four years. We see first round picks making the NHL the next year or just a year after that. We see them making an impact a year or two after they've been drafted, especially when you're talking about this upcoming draft, which is said to be one of the deepest drafts in years where you could be talking about guys that are getting picked in the 20s that are stepping into the NHL immediately or maybe a year later. So I don't think the narrative that, oh, this is a first-round pick that might not make an impact for three or four years, I don't think that actually makes sense because a lot of first-round picks make an impact a lot sooner than that. And it's put us in a weird position where, you know, even if you want the team to be good and even if you are enjoying what you're seeing this year, if you are a draftist, if you do believe that this year's draft is one of the, you know, the best we're going to see in a very long time, as much as this hot start has been fun to watch, I think there's a part of you that's quietly hoping that they do miss the playoffs this year so that this is not the well, pick well, that what they if have this to give up. Draft, what if this upcoming draft is as good as the Kessler year? You know, the, the Canucks got Kessler late in that first round. 23rd, I think. You know, like, you're talking about maybe losing a player like that. If, if that, this upcoming draft year is as good as that year, oh, man. <laughs> like, we could end up kicking, kicking ourselves uh, four or five years down the line if, if a player like that is available and the Canucks just don't have a pick. Yeah, even if they do make the playoffs and the pick is a a later one. Yeah. Uh, Well, there's plenty to unpack there, but I guess I'll have to save that for tomorrow's (laughs) show. Daniel, thank you for doing this. Uh, Where can people find your writing? You can find me at passatabulas.com, or if you go to vancourier.com, you can find me from there as well. You can follow me on Twitter, at passatabulas. That's B-U-L-I-S, not the many misspellings that people use. And, uh... Yeah, you can find me on Instagram too, but I never post anything, so I don't know why you would. <laughs> All right, well, before you go, because <laughs> we were talking about that Alex Edler ice time issue, and you uh, saying that somebody's got to ask uh, Travis Green about this, can you make me a promise right now that after tomorrow's game, uh, the Sunday afternoon game against the New Jersey Devils, will you ask him about Edler's ice time, please? Oh, I can't make that promise because that's one of the few games that I'm not going to be at. Ah! <laughs> but if I get the chance uh, at Monday morning's practice or if they have a, a game day skate on Tuesday, uh, I'll try to work it in there. I'm sure someone else will be asking him because it's been a major point of conversation. So I'm sure that there will be other reporters that uh, raise that particular issue. Well, I don't get the opportunity to ask the questions myself, so I was hoping you could do it for me another <laughs> time then, I guess. I'll pass it along the line. Surely someone will, will take care of that. All right. Thanks, man. There he is, Daniel Wagner of Pass It to Bullis for the Vancouver Courier, and that's our show today, ladies and gentlemen. I would ask you once again, as I have been of late, uh, review the show wherever you get it from, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or uh, Spotify. I don't know if you can even leave reviews on Spotify, but rate and review the program. Gives us a boost in the old Apple algorithms and uh, helps people find the podcast as well, which helps me. And if you like the show, then uh, you can give back in that way. I always appreciate it. I'll be back with you before you know it to tee up tomorrow's action against the New Jersey Devils. And 
talk a, uh, some more about some of the topics that uh, Daniel and I opened up there that I have some more thoughts on. There's plenty more to dive into, and you'll hear it right here on the Locked On Canucks podcast. I have been and will continue to be Justin Morissette, and you're locked in on the Locked On Podcast Network.